Good evening. Tonight's lecture is entitled The Spanish Inquisition. Um, we have discussed previously on three separate occasions Spanish Jewry. We discussed <coughs> quite a while ago the, the period of the Viscots, um, that they were in the 7th century forcibly trying to convert the Jews. Then the Muslims overtook Spain and that brought in the Golden Age of Spain. We had a whole lecture on the Golden Age of Spain. And we mentioned the end of the most Golden Age of Spain, which is when the Lomahads conquered Spain, this radical Muslim group, and forcibly converted Spain. Uh, we mentioned that point when the last lecture, discussing Maimonides. That's when the Ramam's family left Spain, went to Morocco, was forced to leave Morocco, and ended up in Egypt. Tonight, we are going to go back a little bit to the reconquest of Spain. Because if you remember when I was discussing the Golden Age of Spain, I mentioned that the Moors, who were at first <coughs> very uh, peaceful to the Jews, um, they had broken up Spain into duchies. And they did not have unity. They had separate kingdoms, separate duchies, and they didn't have unity amongst them. Whereas the Christians looked at the reconquering, or the reconquest, as they called it, you conquest the Spain as a great crusade. And they had tremendous unity. And slowly but surely, they chipped away at the Muslim domination of Spain. The early Christian rulers, now I talk earlier about the 11th century, were very, very appreciative and kind to the Jews because they wanted Jewish support. The Jews were the swing votes. They were the independents. And they, they were the ones who could really make or break the, the, the alliance of the Christians against the Moors, and later the Alomahads. So they wanted the Jews on their side. In fact, the Jews were spread throughout the country, and it was in the Christians' best interest to be kind to the Jews. At the same time, <coughs> even though the Alomahads, when they started losing towards the Christians, they would ease up the persecution of the Jews. So, when Alfonso VI, who conquered Toledo in 1085, he was extremely gracious to the Jews. And he granted them rights, he granted them privileges, and Toledo, as we discussed previously, became this great Jewish city. Because of Alfonso's kindness to Jews, because of the Lomahad's radical agenda against them, Alfonso actually had 40,000 Jews in his army of his reconquest. So much so, when the great battle of Zalaka happened, he actually waited till after Shabbos. He waited till Motzi Shabbos, and then started the attack <coughs> in order to have his Jewish soldiers. The Jews were known for wearing black and yellow. They actually dressed a little bit different than the rest of the Christians. Christians were wearing crosses, because they were looking at this as a crusade. And the Jews wore black um, and yellow. The king's favoritism towards the Jews became so pronounced that it occasioned a warning by Pope Gregory VII that the Jews should not lord over the Christians. It did, of course, and this is going to be a theme throughout Spanish history, and all the way up to our century, cause hatred amongst the masses toward the, towards the Jews as well. Um, and that hatred, when anything would go wrong, they would then blame the Jews. So therefore, even in this more peaceful time when the, when the Christians lost 
a great battle in Eusicles towards the Muslims in 1108, it led to an anti-Semitic riot in Toledo itself. Many, many Jews were slain. Synagogues and Jewish homes were burnt. Now, Alfonso the, the sixth was kind to the Jews and dis- would, wanted to punish um, the, the anti-Semites and murderers. However, he died before that. After his death, the inhabitants of the city called Carrion slaughtered the local Jews um, and imprisoned others and had the houses pillaged. So even in the best of times, Jews were never, never completely safe. They were at the mercy and the leisure of the Christian rulers, dukes, um, and nobles. When the son of Alfonso VI, Alfonso VII, became the head of Spain in 1111, the head of Christian Spain, he immediately curtailed the rights and liberties that his father uh, granted the Jews. Um, he ordered that neither a Jew nor a convert may exercise legal authority over Christians, and he put the Jews in charge of collecting the royal taxes. Collecting the royal taxes, just go look at, think of the Tea Party today, and put, make the tax percentage about five to ten times that amount, you're not going to be popular, you know, being the tax collector in any time, especially when you forcibly collected taxes within a poor society. Um, but even Alfonso VII realized that he needed Jews, and eventually he eased up on them, and put Yehuda ben Ibn Ezra, who was a famous, Ibn Ezra family would be famous in Spain for generations. Now he didn't empower him as one of his, cha- his top ministers. He actually put him at the head of one of his fortresses. Under his son's reign, Alfonso VIII, the Jews gained even more influence. And many historians uh, attribute this to the fact that he had a Jewish mistress, whose name was Rachel Rochel Formosa of Toledo. Um, when the, he lost the battle, they secretly killed his Jewish mistress because they blamed her bad luck on his loss of, of a battle. Nevertheless, even in these relatively peaceful times, as the reconquest continued, the Jews became more and more in danger. So in the year 1212, there were anti-Semitic riots in Toledo. This is the equivalent of anti-Semitic riots in New York City today, okay? When you think of anti-Semitic riots in Toledo, it, the population was is as great as a percentage of, as New York was, or is, Jewish, okay? So you have people ram, ram, rambaging, ram, rambaging through Jewish neighborhoods in Toledo, and within a generation, they forced the Jews to dress differently, and a papal bull in 1250 Further worse in the situation of the Jews, making it forbidden to convert at all, proselytize. Of course, as I mentioned previously, it was almost unheard of until this century that a Jew would convert a Christian. Never happened. It was, it was, it was grounds for pogroms. It was grounds for death. Conversion, um, as I mentioned, both in Muslim and Christian society was very, very very infrequent. Infrequent because the Jews were downtrodden. It was not so appealing to become Jewish. Frequent because intermarriage was unheard of. Infrequent because it was dangerous. Um, the, the bull of 1250 also started to make separations between Jew and Gentile. Spain was a very, as we mentioned, the goal of Spain, 
there's a lot of inter- interaction between the Jews and Gentiles. So they start separating the Jews. They put the Jews in the Judeo, which is equivalent of what we call a Jewish ghetto, a Jewish quarter. They live separately. They were forced to dress separately. So they're becoming the other. They, increasingly, Jews were the others in Spain. Especially, you have to remember, as Reconquest claimed, the Muslims were not staying in those areas. Okay? So it was the Jews and the Catholics. Yet, at the same time, in the 13th century, Jews were still very much involved in all areas of commerce, agriculture, industry, um, and various handicrafts. Jews were necessary. They were not expendable at the time. Just for an example, in 1294 in Aragon, Jews were approximately 10% of the population, and they paid 25% of the taxes. Um, that's not a group you want to leave your area, especially the you know, high percentage of the doctors, of the government ministers being Jews. If you want to mark where you can start seeing the heralding of Catholic Christian tra- Christians trying to make Spain not only Catholic, but the individuals there only to be Catholic, it's this disputation of Barcelona. We won't go over it again, but to suffice to say, it's from that point on, 1263 on, we discussed that we discussed the Nachmanis, that the Catholics really start to make, try to make Spain homogenous. We don't want Jewish theology out there. We don't want the Jews as a distinct group. group. And that would, vibe would continue. There would be a respite, and that would be in 1350. Now we'll see in life, for the Jews in the Middle Ages, you have to always be careful politically. Okay, it's always, you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket. But in the 1350, the Jews did do that. And they got burnt. They backed the leader of Spain, his name was Pedro I. Pedro I, when his mother passed away, he was the next in line. However, like many times, often in the Middle Ages, there was a power struggle for which of the four sons would take over. And it was between Pedro I and Henry II. Pedro courted the Jews. And he promised them all kinds of promises and he showed tremendous affinity to the Jews. Well, as much as Pedro I showed affinity to the Jews, it created hatred of Henry II because who's backing his Pedro I? The Jews. The Jews are all in Pedro I's camp. So as much as Pedro gave them more rights, more privileges, you know, more power... Henry II became more um, um, enraged and determined that if he would defeat his brother in the Civil War, he would take a vengeance on the Jews. And even during the Civil War, Toledo itself, which was this great New York-type city, got pillaged. The Jewish quarter was under attack. The Judeans in attack. 12,000 Jews were murdered. Ultimately, the Jews of Toledo, with some knights, fought back the, the mobs and they saved Toledo but it, it, it didn't build well when Henry II murdered his own brother Pedro I um, many Jewish towns cities communities I can give you a whole list um, were over here were destroyed completely many other Jews were imprisoned um, and demoted when Henry II became the king therefore the first one of the first things he did is 
have a proclamation. And his proclamation said about the Jews as follows. They have to be kept far from palaces. They are forbidden to hold public office. They must live separate from Christians. Okay, this was Spain, which is the golden age of Spain. This is the equivalent. This is not Libya. Okay? This was the United States of America. This was the greatest home of the Jews. This was the area where more than 50% of world Jewry was living and where the greatest power, where the scholars were, for urging Jews should not wear costly garments nor ride on mules. They must wear distinct badges to indicate that they were Jewish. They were barred from adapting Christian names, were forbidden to carry arms and sell um, weapons. Now, interestingly, a lot of these things we should have done anyways. Uh, you know, you look at some of this, the, the, the words of some of the wise by the Nuremberg Laws, not having Christian names, they gave them Jews and Abraham and Sarah, not intermarrying, you know, Jews have to be dressed distinctly. So, we should be doing these things anyways. And sometimes, we'll see what happens to Spanish Jewry, how it collapses internally, eventually. Um, God sends messages. You know, no one can say 100%, but I, I can tell you that the sages themselves say, when we don't make Havdalah, when we don't separate ourselves as the Gentiles do, and we see this over and over historically, there's always waves. There's a period of assimilation, and God forbid there's a period of um, affliction. Okay, that's always the case. That, you know, ultimately, says God, don't, you don't want to separate yourself. You don't realize you're a Jew, then you will be reminded um, that you are. However, in 1369, when Henry II made this proclamation, the Jews were still indispensable. And ultimately, because again, you have to remember, if the whole economy stops, or just like the tax collectors were unpopular, people don't want the economy to stop. Certainly the king um, of Spain was not interested in damaging the Spanish economy. And ultimately, more than his hatred for the Jews who backed his brother, he cared about the economy. You only have to look at the current president to see if somebody's going to flip their mind, you know, based on the economy. Right? People always cared about uh, the economy. So he, he backtracked on a lot of these anti-Semitic decrees. In fact, Shmuel Abarbanel, the Barbanel family was also a very famous Spanish family. We will get, we'll talk about his descendants soon, became one of the heads of Spain. However, things were not going well for the Jews. The reconquest was firmly in place, and Spain was becoming increasingly more radically Catholic. Okay? Um, this, the, it had now passed the period of the Crusades, and not only Crusades, if you remember correctly, we went through the Black Plague. Okay? And after the Black Plague, the Jews were really scorned. So, in 1390, after the death of King John I, really a period of blaming the Jews in disorder was going on. <coughs> One person, Ferran Martinez, for years, this was a Jeremiah Wright, this was a Louis Farrakhan, going around blaming the Jews. No one took him seriously. You know, if you read, by the way, it's very interesting, if you read, it's not hard to read, if you go look up what politic, political um, politicians thought about Hitler in the 1920s, in the mid-1920s, you know, even after his, you know, Munich uh, 1923 idea of having his revolt in Munich, they laughed at the man. They thought he was a nobody, a, a wacko. But you know what? You repeat something and you go over and over and you allow, allow things to spur. Now, we should be, when you, by the way, when we see 
things on the internet or you know anti-Israel demonstrations on universities that should concern us. I, I mean, I can only tell, I can only say these things. The more these things occur, the more dangerous things are to escalate. Well, this Ferrer Martinez for years was going on that the Jews are the devil, the Jews are evil, they're the Antichrist, they're, they're heretics, they're Christ killers, going on from city to city. Well, on Ash Wednesday, <coughs> in 1391, actually the Pope had told him to stop. But he was an archdeacon and he didn't listen to the Pope. And they didn't have respect, as we imagine, for the Pope always. Well, on 1391, on Ash Wednesday, he actually got a mob involved. And 4,000 Jews were killed on June 6th, on that Ash Wednesday. Well, once the riots started, it spread, like, you know, you actually think of Egypt today, or Tunisia. No one could predict it. But once it started, it turned into a whirlwind. And within three days, 50,000, this is not with guns, this is with swords, with daggers, 50,000 Jews were killed in Spain within three days in 1391. Not only were 50,000 Jews uh, killed, but people were so terrified that something that never happened in Jewish history would start to happen in Spain. Jews converted. It was unheard of. Unheard of. And you can think of any society, in any culture, where Jews were minorities, were persecuted, for Jews to convert. In fact, when the Crusades occurred, remember I discussed, parents slaughtered their children. People never considered conversion. Well, in Spain, tens of thousands, some say as many as 600,000 Jews. This is not 1492. In the year... 1391 as many as 600,000 Jews converted okay but certainly tens of thousands of Jews converted it's impossible to know for sure which will already start the Murano problem which we will discuss at length the Chassid Yaivitz not the Yaivitz of the 18th century but Rabbi Yosef HaChassid Yaivitz who was one of the people who left Spain as a result of the massacres of 1391 blamed the Jewish conversion on the not only the external pressures but the, the fact that Jews had been so subsumed, so involved in philosophy in Spain so into Spanish culture that he blamed the fact that so many tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of Jews converted that their faith in God was not rock solid and that therefore when the fire was hot enough, they were still under tremendous pressure it's not, this was not, you know you know, converting simply for the fun. But they would convert, which is unheard of. Basically, you have to imagine like this. You know, just imagine, um, it's, not, it's even almost, you know, you believing something so fervently and doing it and, and leaving it. Leaving, completely living a false life. Okay, completely every day of your life living a false life. To convert, to convert in Judaism is to, to say life is, it's worse it's one of the three cardinal sins. Basically, life is not worth it. That's why you give up your life before you would do idolatry. It's the antithesis of Judaism. Judaism says, it's not worth it to live a fake life. And yet, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, the had many pieces um, about conversion. He also interestingly writes that, you know, lo and behold, some of the Jewish men had, um, had mistresses who were Spanish, and he writes in his writings, 
and that their own children murdered them. You know, and they had children. These messages, you know, were very wealthy, very affluent, very part of Spanish society. And of course, in that society, they didn't just have a wife; they could have a mistress. He blamed some of them that their own children murdered. Them. It's an interesting point. The Ashkenazic actually darshanim. We'll discuss Ashkenazic during the weeks to come. In the 16th and 17th century, in Poland and in Lithuania and Russia, were certainly anti-philosophy, they were anti-assimilation, much more so. <laughs> and we already made a distinction between French Jewry, the, the House of Rashi, and Sephardic Jewry. But they would, for, for 200 years, say, look what happened to Spanish Jewry. Hey, look what happens when Jews assimilate. Look what happens when Jews become overly invested in philosophy. And they would go around. You can read the, the, the liturgy on this. It's unbelievable. They actually stopped that, though. Because in the 17th century, which would be a lecture in its own place, there would be the Chalmanitsky massacres. And Ashkenazic Jewry themselves would get massacred in the hundreds of thousands by Ukrainian Cossacks under Bogdan Chalmanitsky. Chalmaniki, if you want to be uh, like the, like the, like the Litvaks. Um, so, but after that, they said, well, it happened to them also. But for 200 years, they said the same thing as the Yavits. Look what happens. How could it be that a Jew ever converts out? And yet, hundreds of thousands of Jews um, did. And we'll see, see what happened with these converts in the near future. But after 1391, things became very black to the Jews. And in order to further humiliate the Jews, again, you have to imagine, imagine right now, God forbid. But you look at New York, Jewry. Imagine, forget the United States. If all of a sudden the mayor of New York was the king of New York. Happens to be the mayor of New York is a Jew. <laughs> but now imagine some Italian, some Indian, some American takes over New York and has the ability to make proclamations. And the first thing you do is you see pulls the Jews out of Wall Street. And out of the Diamond District, and out of this, and out of the Kinoa, 40% of the lawyers in New York are Jewish. No more Jewish lawyers. Well, what do you think is going to happen? Okay? So, immediately after 1391, what were the decrees against the Jews? They had to live by themselves and enclosed in the Judarias, in the, the quarter. Now, they're banned from practicing medicine, surgery, or chemistry. They're the main doctors. They're banned from se- selling commodities such as bread, <coughs> wine, flour, meats. Banned from engaging in handicrafts or trades of any kind. Forbidden to hire Christian servants, farm, Hands and lamplighters or grave diggers. <coughs> Excuse me. They're banned from eating, drinking, bathing, holding intimate conversations with, visiting, or giving presents to Christians. Banned from holding public office or acting as money brokers or agents. Any no Christian woman, married or unmarried, is ever allowed in the Jewish quarter. Allowed no self jurisdiction whatsoever. Um, nor can they have any ta- internal taxes, which means no more be- no more basins in the Jewish um, court. Forbidden to assume the title Don. Don is like the Lord uh, uh, nobility in Spain. Forbidden to carry our arms, which basically made them powerless in a world of arms. Forbidden to trim their beard or hair. Um, Jewish Jewesses, Jewish ladies were required to wear plain, long garments of coarse material reaching to the feet. And Jews were forbidden to wear garments made of fine material. On the pain of loss of property and even slavery, Jews were forbidden to leave the country and any grandier knight who protected the southern Jew was punished with a tremendous fine. These laws were intended to force the Jews into conversion. To make life 
so miserable for the Jews that it wasn't worth living as a Jew. Well, what happened immediately, okay, even in 1391 Spain, is that the total economy of Spain stopped. Okay? In Aragon, which, uh, okay, such, in cities of, such as Barcelona, Lerida, and Valencia, they had lost more than half of the people who lived there, and the cities became impoverished within a year. Um, so eventually, within a year or two, Queen Maria, who is the, count, the consort of Alfonso V, and who is a temporary regent, annulled most of these laws. She annulled most of these laws because it wasn't practical. It just, Spain couldn't exist as is. But, again, people are trying to, to get the Jews to convert. Okay? Because even though they're economically powerful, they're the other. They're still going to have to dress different. They're still the Christ killers. They're still the poisoners of wells. Children of Satan. They were viewed as despised. They were theologically hated. In 1411, a demagogic preacher, Vincent Ferrer, traveled throughout Castile, calling Christians to penance. And every sermon that he gave, at the end of the sermon, he would revel the Jews and say, how are we allowing the Jews to live amongst us? Right? How does we allow the Christ killers to live amongst us? So, in 1413, Ferrer, the Spanish anti-pope, Benedict XIII, and a Jewish apostate, who, Yoshua Halarki, who was at one point the doctor of the, um, had the of, of Castile, of the, of the, of the, the king of Castile, who converted to Christianity, decided on a grand debate that will get all the Jews to convert by forcing a grand debate. However, this debate will not be like the disputation of Barcelona Tosity. We're going to change the rules. The Jews cannot go on offense. They can only go on defense. And we're going to intimidate them throughout the process. Um, and they had actually many great Jewish scholars there, but the pressure was tremendous. They said that actually some of the rabbis who were debating the Christians actually converted as the debate went on. The pressures were so great, but there are many others. Joseph Albo was part of this debate. Uh, Shimon Duran. Shimon Duran was a Jew who was at one point forcibly converted, okay, and became the greatest um, anti-polemicist against Catholicism. But he was a pugnacious Jew. He was fearless. And he needs to be that kind of person. He was technically a heretic according to Catholicism. Okay? Uh, because if you, if you ever convert to Catholicism, you were always a Catholic, right? You can't, you can't leave the Catholic faith. Even if you were forcibly baptized against your will, which he was. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't convert out of his own peace of mind. He forcibly baptized him in during a pogrom. This debate carried on for three years. Um, of, in the beginning, the Jews were reluctant to defend themselves and they, it was not going well. But as the debate went on, they became more cogent and more daring in their arguments. And eventually, the Christians called the debate and declared themselves a winner. The debate was a disaster at some level because it showed the Jews just where they were. And it really signified to the Jews that there was no future in Spain. Now, we can say to the say, well, why don't you get out of there? But where are they going to go? <laughs> France was dangerous. Germany was dangerous. North Africa 
was impoverished. Imagine, you know, telling American Jews, okay, you can leave, but we want you to move to Central Africa. And I've told New York Jews, okay, we'll let you leave. Go to Central Africa. You can move to Kenya. You can move to Tanzania. You can go to Nairobi. Oh, a beautiful city. How many Jews are going to willingly go to these places? And you have to leave all your money behind? They weren't checks you, you took your check, check with you. You, you necessarily couldn't you sell your house. It was tremendous pressures. The Jews started to look for answers. One of the things they tried to do was in 1473, they actually tried to buy Gibraltar. <laughs> the king refused to sell Gibraltar, though. By 1473, though, tensions were arising. But not, believe it or not, not between the Jews and the Catholics. They would begin to arise between the Jews and the conversos, between the Catholics and the conversos, between the Catholics and the Jewish converts, the hundreds of thousands of Jewish converts who had converted from 1391 through 1473. Because as we'll discuss, more than they, they would hate the Jews, they would hate these converts. <laughs> okay, which is unbelievable. So in 1473, on March 14th, 1473, during a dedication process for a new um, a, a for a new Catholic order, a girl who's a con- from a conversal family actually threw dirty water out of the window. Now, in the old days, you didn't have plumbing. What did you do? You threw dirty water out of the window. That's how you got rid of dirty water. Well, when she threw it out, she didn't look where she threw it, and it happened to be that this procession was going on. This was a procession led by a bishop, Di Pedro, who. Bar, bar Jews from his new Catholic order. Oh, of course, you, when I say Jews, you barred new Christians. Right? New Christians were not allowed into this Catholic order. So when this conversal girl, this Catholic girl, in theory, threw dirty water out of her house and it hit this procession, the mob went berserk. And they denounced these conversals, the conversos, these Jews who had converted over, over 80 years as heretics. And he started to kill them. Well, a Di Alonso de Alguilera, who was a count, but whose wife was a conversal, because the Jews, you know, we'll see some Jews did not intermarry, but others of the conversos would, tried to stop them. One of the mob insulted this count. We don't insult the count. He killed this person who killed him. Um, but that enraged the mob, and for days they pillaged Cordoba. Okay, Cordoba, the birthplace of Maimonides, Cordoba, the city where once Jews were so involved, Jews were massacred. Not Jews, conversos were massacred. And these massacres would spread throughout Spain in 1473. 1473, though, there were a new king and queen in England. This king and queen of England were famous as the Catholic monarchs. Their names were King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. Isabella. They would unify Aragon and Castile. In Spain. In Spain. Um, in Spain. <laughs> no questions. <laughs> so, um, they would unify Castile and Aragon and unite Spain as one entity. Okay? When Ferdinand of Aragon married Isabella of Castile, you know who the Shadchan was? A Jew. A Jew named Avram Senor, who was one of the wealthiest people. He was not a conversal, he was a full-fledged Jew. Who was a learned Jew, who was one of the leaders of Spanish Jewry, 
one of the two greatest leaders of the time, with Don Yitzhak Abarbanel, who at the age of 80, in 1492, when given a choice to leave with the Jews or convert, converted. At the age of 80 in 1492. This was the wealth, one of the wealthiest leaders of, of Spain. He was a power broker in Spain. He made the shit He brokered the deal from Isabella to Ferdinand. And then, he, they gave him power actually, uh, even though they were the Catholic monarchs. But in 1492, when push came to shove, he took, kissed the cross, and said, let leave with the Jews, believe it or not. Well, the Catholic monarchs, Isabella especially, she was the firmer of the two, they asked the Pope in 1478 for a bull to set up an inquisition. From the beginning, when it's the Inquisition more in detail in a few minute moments, the royal decree explicitly stated that the Inquisition was to rid Christianity from fake converts. The start of the, even though the Inquisition would be more expansive, and we'll discuss that at length, but the bull in 1478 starting the Inquisition explicitly stated, and the whole purpose of it was to rid Christianity from Jewish converts. Fake Christian converts. Um, although the first Inquisitors um, uh, got to work a few months after the decree, it was not until the infamous 1483 Grand Inquisitor Thomas de Torquemada took over where the Inquisition really became bloodthirsty. Now, before we go into detail the Inquisition, it's worth it to say that one of the remarkable things of the Inquisition and the eventual expulsion was that many, if not most, of the protagonists of this had Jewish blood. Thomas de Torquemada was one of them. King Ferdinand, King of Spain, was another. How is King Ferdinand Jewish? You can look this up. This is so mind-boggling. That remember we were talking about Pedro the First. The Jews put their money in Pedro the First, and his brother Henry the Second killed him. Well, I said that Pedro and Henry had, had a few brothers, but Pedro and Henry, it was, the duel was between them. One of the brothers was Don Fadrique Alfonso of Castile, who was a, 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 a child of Alfonso the Sixth. He was born in Seville. Well, Fadrique backed. Henry II, but his brother Pedro, who eventually lost, killed him in the process. Did this Frederick was married to some Leonor de Angulo, who was a Catholic Castilian nobleman, but never had a child. But he did have three children from a Jewish lady. Her name was Paloma, who was his mistress. These three bastard children would be his seed. One of them was named one of them would have a child named Juana Enriquez. This Juana Enriquez was the second wife of John II of Aragon and the mother of Ferdinand II of Aragon who was the kill, who expelled the Jews. This Juana Enriquez also was eventually the ancestor of most of the Habsburg dynasty of Europe. So this is a historical fact. So therefore Queen Isabella also had Jewish blood in her. The Diego de Raza, who was the Grand Inquisitor after Torquemada, also had Jewish blood. 
Hernando de Talavero, who was Isabella's personal confessor. His mother was a conversa, which meant he was halachically Jewish. Pedro de Lacabra and Alonso de Lacabra were conversos who were also helped strengthen the kingdom of Ferdinand and Isabella. Gabriel Sanchez was a conversa and Luis de Santagel was a conversa who were the chief treasurer and Ferdinand's budget ministers of Spain during the Inquisition. We're going to go back to the Inquisition more in detail, but before we get further into the Inquisition, in the year 1492, Granada, which was the last Muslim stronghold in southern Spain, right, southwest Spain, um, falls. Part of the peace treaty with the king of Granada was that that Ferdinand and Isabella would not afflict neither the Jews or the Moors <coughs> of Granada. Suffice it to say, they did not keep their part of the bargain. Because within a few months of Granada falling, Ferdinand and Isabella had the Alhambra decree, or the Edict of Expulsion, which would finally make Spain Judenrein, free of all halachic Jews. How do they? Why do they do that? Well, we'll see in the edict in a second. They did that in order that the Jews should not influence the conversos who were not assimilating well into Spain. But there's another reason, and the second reason was that this battle of Granada had used a lot of the income of the Spanish treasury, and a quick way to replenish their treasury was to force all the Jews out of Spain and keep all of their possessions. So, well, they, or they converted. One of the, or, they, or they converted. The ma- number of Jews who would leave Spain is a matter of debate. Don Yitzhak Abarbanel, who led the Jews out, claimed there were 300,000. He was a contemporary. The, the, um, his father, historian Juan de Mariana, who was a famed Jesuit historian, who was also alive at the time, said there were 800,000 Jews who left Spain. Many historians say it's somewhere around 250,000, 300,000, closer to Abar Manal. Let's look at source number one. This is the Alamba decree, the Edict of Expulsion. Whereas, having been informed that in, this, in these kingdoms there were some bad Christians who Judaized and apostatized from our holy Catholic faith, the chief cause of which was the communications of Jews with Christians, we order the said Jews in all cities, towns, and places in all kingdoms and dominions to separate into juries, ghettos, and place apart, hoping that by their separation alone to remedy this evil, that the Jews shouldn't affect these conversos. But we are informed that neither that, not the execution of some of the said Jews has been sufficient for a complete remedy. Therefore, we resolve to order all the said Jews and Jewesses to quit our kingdoms and never return. Now, Jews would not return to Spain for over 400 plus years after this. By the next month of the next July of the next present year, 1492, if they do not perform actually the same and are found to reside in our, our kingdoms, should be our kingdoms, they incur the penalty of death. We likewise grant permission and authority to the said Jews to export their wealth property, whether they do not take away gold, silver, money, or any other articles for the laws of kingdom. And basically, they could take their shmatas with them. <laughs> okay. Now, 
the Jews tried to get this edict reversed. And in fact, there was one Jew, besides Abraham's senior, who kissed the cross, who converted the age of 80. So imagine one of the greatest Jewish leaders. It's, it's mind-boggling. That somebody ever says, like, it's, it's, it, you know, I, can't, I don't even say it, the name of a person of our generation who would convert rather than leave. But there was a second great Jewish leader in Spain. His name was Don Yitzhak Abarmanel, Isaac Abarmanel, who at the time was the chief of the treasury of Spain, which meant that he was bigger than Ben Bernanke, bigger than Alan Greenspan, because he tra- didn't just run, run the Federal Reserve, he ran the whole economy. You know, if you were the chief of the treasury, that meant you had the, the brains behind it. He was extremely powerful. Dinosaur Barbell was not only a great politician, he was a Talmudic scholar of note. His commentary on Tanakh is one of the most prolific, one of the most important works in the past few hundred years. He tried very hard to rescind the decree. He himself offered 300,000 ducats. In other words, don't expel them for the money. I'll, 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 I'll raise the money for you. I'll pay for my own money. I'll raise the money for you. He begged and he cried for them to, to stay. And according to the legend, he was almost successful. But as Don Yitzhak Abarmanel was begging in front of Ferdinand and Isabella to let the Jews stay, the Dominicans heard what was going on. They got Torquemada, and Torquemada came running in with a cross which hit Isabella in the head. And he said to her, Judas sold his master, Jesus, for 30 pieces of silver. Now you will sell them anew? And of course, Isabella and her Catholic fervor said, Never! And so ended Don Isaac of Arbonnel's appeal for the Jews. Now, Don Isaac of Arbonnel was very worth, worthy to the king. They didn't want to lose him. They promised him that we, he, he can stay as a professing Jew, and he can even keep a minion with him. He needed a minion, a quorum. <laughs> so they told him he can stay, can be a completely fervent Jew, and have a minion with him. Suffice to say that Barbanel did not stay. Um, the Barbanel would leave. Next six months were radical after this decree in Spain. Um, they had to liquidate whatever assets they can take with them. Most of the wealth they could not take. Nobody knew where they were going. Where do you go? They bit men were on boats with no destination. What day was the final day of the exile? Well, originally it was supposed to be the last day of July. For various reasons, it got delayed to August 2nd, 1492, which of course is Tisha B'Av. I remember, you, if you ever, I once, I forgot who it said, but that if the, Spain ever realized how much they'd be strengthening Jewish faith by expelling them on, on, on Tisha B'Av, they never expelled them. Jews were expelled also from England on Tisha B'Av as well. <coughs> but they were expelled on Tisha B'Av the day when the first and second temple were destroyed. The Abarbanel actually said that they should play music as they went onto the boats. This is on Tisha B'Av generally a day of fasting, but to boost the spirits. The Abarbanel's writings would be very messianic in nature. Um, in two lectures from now, we will discuss Kabbalah, the founding of Kabbalah, and how the Spanish Inquisition expulsion would have a profound um, effect not only on the Kabbalistic movement, but the desire for a Messiah, the desire for a hope as well. You can really sense in the Barbanel's writings. <coughs> as the Jews 
are in the ports leaving Spain and all the boats are leaving Spain. There were three other boats. There's the Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria are sitting there. And Columbus, his own diaries say he had to wait to leave the ports because there are so many Jews leaving. Look at source number two. In the same month in which this is the diary, it's actually the beginning of Columbus's diary. In the same month in which their majesties issued the edict that all the Jews should be driven out of the kingdom and its territories, in the same month, they gave me the order to undertake with sufficient, sufficient men my expedition of the discovery of the Indies. Now, many or some, I should say, historians contend that Columbus himself came from Jewish blood. Well, how, where, where are the proofs of this contention? It's not verified. But what are the proofs? Well, one of them is that Christopher Columbus was not born in Spain. He was born in Italy, in general, in Italy, although his first language was still in Spanish. So many Jews, in the, and thir- after 1391, left to Genoa, Italy, and he spoke a language called Ladino. Ladino was the Yiddish of Spain. It was a romanticized Spanish, <coughs> which the Spanish people spoke. Um, so why would a first language of somebody from Genoa, Italy, be Castilian Spanish? That was one of the proofs. The second is that many of like, if you look at his writings, he has little things on the top of his letters. Some people want to say it's either a Beze or a Beze which means with God's help, which Jews are accustomed to write. Number three, if you read his diaries, he speaks about Zion an awful lot. Nobody knows why. Now, he's not talking in Jewish terms. He speaks about Zion a lot. Number four is, on his crew, there are at least five known conversos, Jews. One of them was a Jew, Louis de Torres, who literally, a day or two, right before the expulsion order was finally done, went and got baptized. Why did Columbus take this Leo de Torres? Louis de Torres, because he spoke eight languages. One of the languages that he spoke was Hebrew, and Columbus believed that when he went to the Indies, he needed a Hebrew speaker, because it's quite possible that the Indians were going to speak Hebrew, because in those days, excuse me, they thought that Hebrew was the oldest language. And they thought there would be Hebrew speakers um, amongst them. This Torres, by the way, the Hebrew Torres, never came back. He stayed in Cuba and became the first Spanish cigar maker <laughs> in Cuba. Jews start everything good, right? Started Cuban cigars. Um, on a different note, though, and on a more profound note, the fact that Columbus's journey would start the day or two after Jews were finally expelled from Spain is another one of the, the, the cures with, with the wounds. Because God was creating the, the final resting place of the Jews in the exile. I'll speak more about the phenomenon of America in a few weeks from now. But you have to imagine, as Spain, the greatest Jewish, um, arguably since Babylonia, and since the next great Jewish country, at this level would be America where Jews were as assimilated, as powerful, as accepted, comes to a bloody, disheartening, tragic end, the doors of America are opening within a day. It's mind-boggling. Uh, incidentally, uh, Columbus's journey was not financed by uh, Isabella. You know, sometimes they, they, 
if you read her story, some, some, you know, books, she sold her Jews jewels for the, for the votes. That's not, that's not historically true. It was financed by two Jewish conversos. Uh, Louis de Santigal and Gabriel Sanchez, who was the treasurer of Aragon, who were both very high up in, in Spain. And the first letter that Columbus sent back about his journey from the Indies at the time was not to Ferdinand and Isabel, but it was to these two Jewish um, conversos. Not only did convert, was Columbus financed by Satan, but he used the Jacob's uh, staff, which was created by one of the great Jews of Provence, Gershonides, who had converted, Levi ben Gershon, who was a grandson of Ramban, who created, who had manufactured this Jacob's staff, which was a, which was a way to figure out where they were. And the map that Columbus used was the map of the Cresca family from Majorca, Spain. Right? So the Jewish contribution to Columbus's journey was almost total. <laughs> okay? To, to the founding of America. Um, just, you know, just as, uh, as a side note, the, the, the Spain really, within a hundred years, would become a non-entity in Europe. And it's a reminder that the, the host country of the Jews are always the successful country. It's interesting that one of the countries where Jews ran to was the Ottoman Empire, which was to Turkey, which we'll discuss in the future. Um, Turkey was a very, very powerful um, empire at the time. Um, Bezad II said about Ferdinand, he said, he said, they tell me that Ferdinand of Spain is a wise man, but he's a fool, for he takes his treasure and he sends it all to me. As Spain emptied itself of Jews, when they should be becoming the most powerful kingdom by far in the world, they had conquered the new world. They had found the new They beat the world to America, to Mexico, to South America. You would imagine within the next 150 years they're becoming the most powerful country, but they slowly but surely wither away, so much so by, by the 16th century they get the Spanish Armada gets defeated by England, and Spain is a non-entity by the 17th century in European and world history. They really have no more part to play this most powerful kingdom. And this really is because the Jews, where the Jews are, brings blessing. It says in, in, in Bratius, uh, you base Gimel, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse, uh, uh, who curse you. Through you will be blessed all the families of the earth. You know, we say on Pesach that uh, if, if a God would not free us from Egypt, we'd still be slaves to this day. Some of the commentators say, why would we still be slaves to this day? Who says we'd still be slaves? So the com- one of the commentators I once saw say, because if we'd still be in Egypt, Egypt would still be the most powerful empire in the world. When the Jews were in Egypt, they were the most powerful empire. When we leave, they, they kind of, for a period, leave the world's world history. Wherever the Jews are, look, America gets more and more Jews. When does America really become the world dominant power? But in, by the Civil War, they still were not the world dominant power. There are many more powerful empires. It's really in the 1880s as the National Revolution starts coming into play. Who starts coming in the 1880s in mass? The Jews. Right? Wherever the Jews are, that country becomes the center stage. Look at this quote from Thomas Newton, source number three, Thomas Newton, the Bishop of Bristol. The preservation of the Jews is really one of the most signal, and, and that means in our language, significant, uh, and illustrious acts of divine providence. <coughs> what but a supernatural power could have preserved them in such a manner as none other nation upon earth has been preserved? 
nor is the providence of God less remarkable in the destruction of their enemies than in their preservation. We see that the great empires, which in their turn subdued and oppressed the people of God, all are come to ruin. And if such has been the fatal end of the enemies, the pressure of the Jews, let it serve as a warning to all of those who at any time or upon any occasion are for raising a clamor of persecution against them. He's primarily talking about Spain. Okay? Of course, it happens in other, plenty of other times in history. But when you kick out the Jews, Jews are the, you know, we started this history lecture, there wouldn't be a focus of history. We, we're not, there were, I was just, so, I was lying in a car, and I was, I was in the National Ge- Geography Bay. So I have a pretty good, and someone, you know, so I haven't, but I haven't been as into geography for many years. So I had a Bangladeshi taxi driver in New York. And he tells me there's 160 million people in Bangladesh. So I remember like 80, 90 million people. That's 160. I looked it up. 158 million people in Bangladesh. Who do you ever hear about Bangladesh? When do you ever see them in, in the news? Do you know 158 million people? It's the eighth most populous country in the world. There are, there are, there are tribes in India or in, 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 in <coughs> Africa which are much greater than Jews. You just don't ever hear of. Right? Where, where we are is going to make and break World, world, world history. On to the Inquisition. Now, I mentioned briefly the Inquisition before. Now, the first Inquisition had actually started in 1233. That was nothing to do with the Jews. That was against French heretics um, called Albuginis, uh, who the first Inquisition was against. It was relatively mild. But when the Inquisition would come against the Jews... It would not be mild. It would actually lead to death for many. And there's, of course, a great irony. At first, the Christians forcibly converted the Jews. <laughs> first, they forcibly converted the Jews. And then, the Inquisition would be to, to stamp them out. Right? First, they forced the Jews to convert. And then, as the Jews became extraordinarily powerful, extraordinarily powerful, we'll discuss in a minute or two, how extraordinarily powerful they started to hate their guts. They took over the country. We see this already by Egypt. What's power is concerned? They're taking over the place. Germany, 19th century, right? We imagine German reform. What was the whole purpose of German reform? To assimilate. And they did a wonderful job of assimilating. There are many Lutherans and Catholics in Bavaria and in Germany today who come from Jewish descent, even after the Holocaust, or from who are descendants of German Jews. Their whole point was to assimilate and join German society. Well, they did, all right. Within 40, 50 years... German Jewry would have a very, very powerful role. I mean, the, the greatest German author was Heinrich Heine, and you had Felix Mendelssohn was the greatest musician, and the bankers, and the, all of the major malls were owned by Jews, and psychology was started by German Jews, and all the physicists primarily were Jews. Well, that would rouse the hatred of Germans, not the love. Right? People like Hitler would say they're taking over the place. People like Richard Wagner, if you ever read the writings of Richard Wagner, I can't understand why a Jew would ever listen to the music of Richard Wagner. The man was a repugnant anti-Semitism. Streicher in all uses words, his words, not his music. I mean, his music was played at the Bayreuth Festival, which was a Nazi propaganda festival year after year. But his words, he was, he was a rabid anti-Semite. His son-in-law, Eustace Stuart Chamberlain, was was a racial anti-Semite who basically blamed Jewish blood for despoiling U- Europe. He would, these people would set the floor for the Nazis 30, 40, 50 years later. 
Well, what they blamed was that the Jews were taking over the place. The conversos would be the same thing in the eyes of the Spanish. These conversos were fake Christians. They were new Christians. They were not old Christians. We're going to distinguish now. They were called new Christians or conversos, which is they were converts in, or more derogatorily, they were Moranos. They were swine. They were dirty. They were they were sickly. They were Moranos. In Europe, they used to call the Jews the Jids, which was Jewish swine. Those were Jews. These were their own Catholic brothers who they forced to convert or they convinced to convert. Um, it was to, the, the Inquisition was not for the Jews in the 1470s. It was to get out the fake Jews, the fake Christians. And many of them, of course, the Jews were forcibly converted or didn't wholeheartedly convert. And they had secret Jewish practices. They were right. There were many conversos who were secretly Jews. Even until maybe a hundred years ago, in Southwest America and Northern Mexico, there would be Jews who would go downstairs Friday night and light candles. And now, halakhically speaking, I'll speak about what, it, what it, the halakhic status do, they halakhically have a different Christianity right now. There are no real communities of Anusim. There's one or two, perhaps I'll mention it at the end, where they can consider to be Jews because they have no Masorah. I'll discuss that. But they had Jewish practices. Well, 400 years ago, they were, they were, they were probably almost all halakhically Jews, and they were doing these secret Jewish practices. The Inquisition was to get them out, and also it was a get back out these Jews who had taken over Spanish society. They had married into the nobility. They had taken over the higher church uh, positions. Look at Torquemada himself was a Jew, as well as his his his, ne- his next in command. In 15th century Spain, the greatest physician, Ferdinand's physician, was a Jew, a Jew named Francisco Lopez. The greatest writers, because Jews were literate, have all lots of names here. The greatest bankers, the bankers who banked uh, Columbus, were all conversos. They really were the elite of Spain. And they were new Christians. Look at source number four. Now, when the Inquisition would start gaining steam, it would, of course, become a witch hunt. So, source number four, Pope... Sixtus IV, who gave the original bull, started getting nervous, and he wanted to prohibit it from continuing. Many true and faithful Christians, because of the testimonies of enemies, rivals, slaves, and other low people, and still less appropriate, with tests of any kind, have been locked up in secular prisons, tortured and condemned like relapsed heretics, deprived of their goods and properties, and given over to the secular arm to be executed at great danger to their souls, and giving a pernicious example and causing a scandal to many. So he wanted to block it, but Ferdinand and Isabella constantly pushed. It was in 1483 for the not only for the to continue, but for it to be expanded. Right? If they saw a Jew whose chimney did not have smoke on the Sabbath, they must have been a converso. If the Jews were buying lots of vegetables before the Passover, anything that they could have possibly think of to the converso. Now, the pressure of having these inquisitions, because we'll see soon how the inquisition works, it did cause some backfire, but in, in 1485, one of the top inquisitors was murdered, and then people backed it more, which is always a thing, and it had a lot of public support. Just to understand how um, comprehensive it was, between 1484 and 1530, 
of those the Inquisition in Valencia, 92% were Jews. In Barcelona, the Inquisition, 99.3% were conversos. The Inquisition did affect, affect something called Morascos, which were Muslims, Moors, who had converted. They looked for them. Uh, less so were the Protestants. Actually, what the Inquisition did is it blocked the Reformation from coming to Spain because it was so intense in Spain that you'll never... Spain to this day remained a, a completely Catholic country, the Protestant Reformation never would, would have a beachhead in Spain because of the power of the Inquisition. Other offenses of, uh, by the Inquisition was superstitions, any heresy, Protestantism would be would, even the beginning of that, bigamy, and solicitation for sin. All of them could be prosecuted by the, the Inquisition. The Inquisitor General was the only national position of all Spain besides the king and queen. Now it was one inquisitor general for all of Spain and for all of the new world. So he is a tremendously powerful um, position. He would set uh, they would have, they would meet every day, okay, um, of the year, every morning except for uh, holidays, and they would put, they would spend two hours in the afternoons uh, as well, uh, and the morning sessions were questions of faith, and then the afternoon section, those two-hour sessions, would be for the minor heresies, unacceptable sexual behavior, bigamy, witchcraft. One of the most striking aspects of the organization of the Inquisition was its form of financing. The Inquisition, even though it's national, um, powerful thing, had no budget. Their budget came from the victims. So as one, one converso told Charles I um, uh, of Spain, Your Majesty must provide for us the expenses of the Holy Office do not come from the properties of condemn. Because if that is the case, if they do not burn, they do not eat. <laughs> so they had a, a, an impetus for spreading the Inquisition because the budget came from their victims. How did an accusation start? I, I, I read many on our, uh, uh, a piece of this. Many of the totalitarian regimes that would happen in the 19th and 20th century would actually imitate. The ideas came from the Inquisition. How to implement a totalitarian society, big brother society, they actually did how the Inquisition did. So when the Inquisition would come to a city, be rotating, the first step was they'd set up an edict of grace. They would come on Sunday Mass, the Inquisitor, and he would read the edict. It explains possible heresies. Do you find any people have anything Jewish here? Anything else of the sort? And the edict of grace was because you had 30 to 40 days to reconcile the church without severe punishment. There was punishment, but not severe. But by 1500, there was no more edict of grace. There's only edict of faith. <laughs> you had a grace period after that. You can denounce anybody. And the denunciations were anonymous. Um, and the defendants had no way of knowing who had denounced them. So if you had an enemy, you could be denounced. Okay? This would be one of the actual trigger points for the opponents of the Christian. Basically, you created a world where anyone can denounce anyone without having any knowledge of who denounced you. Okay? And false denunciations were... Um, frequent, and especially if someone was a converso, and they were of power, and people were jealous of them, well, you were already suspect, you were a converso, 
and you're a rich guy, I owe you money? He must be a secret Jew. That guy's a secret Jew. He had secret denoun- denunciations. The detention could go on for months. And this Inquisition had no budget, so who paid for their detention? The estate of the victim. Okay? You could be in jail for months without knowing why. Your estate has to pay for you. You don't know your accusation. Now, you think it, uh, you were afforded eventually um, an attorney, but in the beginning, you have, you have no idea what you did wrong. Okay? Again, the archives of the Inquisition, these, they, they have tremendous... It's like the Nazis. If you ever look at how, how the Nazis have... They documented all the things. The Inquisition was very, very well documented. We don't have that many cases of 16th, 17th, 18th century Spanish court cases. We don't know the property tax cases that went on there. We do know the Inquisition cases because the Inquisition was meticulous. Remember, these were monks and deacons and lawyers. They actually had secular lawyers involved. They had the elite of Spanish society involved in the Inquisition. Torture was permitted under the Inquisition. Uh, Indiscriminate of sex or age or um, so you can be a lady, you can be a man, you can be 100 years old, you can be 40 years old, you can be 5 years old. Somebody accused a 5 year old, he would also be tortured. The only law that they couldn't do is they couldn't shed blood because Christianity didn't hold of shedding blood. They had torture without shedding blood. So what were the tortures that were the most um, were Garucha, Tolka, and Pocha. Garucha was like a strapito. It consisted of suspending the victim uh uh, uh, by the ceiling, by the wrists, they were held up by the wrists, which were behind the back, and they had weights on the ankles, right? And sometimes they put heavy weights on, and it would dislocate their legs. Okay. The next thing was the toka, which which um, consisted of introducing a cloth in the mouth of the victim and forcing him to just water. Like they would basically choke the guy, pouring water and a cloth down his mouth to give him the impression of drowning. The pocho, which is the rack, was the most prevalent um, instrument of torture, uh, which they put the guy in this extremely painful rack um, as well. One of the terminologies that we use in the common vernacular from the Christian is holding someone's feet to the fire. <laughs> you ever hear that term? Well, that's actually what they did to the Jews. They held their feet to the fire, which they could burn their feet in their lower legs. And of course, you didn't bleed. That was permitted under the Inquisition. Sentencing under the Inquisition. Once in a while, you were fortunate to be acquitted. More often, if they didn't have enough evidence, evidence you were suspended, um, which meant that you're not completely free. They can come back to your case at any time, but they didn't have enough evidence to prosecute you for punishment. You could be penanced. Penance was you were considered guilty, you, but it wasn't serious enough that they were seriously punishing you. So they find you, they put you into exile. Once in a while, you go to the galleys. You know what the galleys were? The galleys were in the old days, you'd be in the boats. And they would chain you to the boats, and you'd have to row to your death. Right? You would be put in the galleys, and you'd row and row across the whole world until you died. Right? Um, if you were more serious, you had to be reconciled. That, you almost definitely got jail for long periods of life. Jail, of course, were not our beautiful taxpayer. Uh, paid jails that we have in California. There were dungeons, or you went to the galleys for farther journeys. Your property was all confiscated. You'd be physically punished, such as whipping, um, as well. The most serious punishment was called relaxation. Relaxation <coughs> was that they condemned you to death. <coughs> Excuse me. 
the Inquisition themselves never murdered anybody. They left the secular arm. The Catholic Church does. No, the Pope today always talks against the death penalty. We don't believe in the death penalty. We believe in endorsing the death penalty for heretics and the secular arm, Ferdinand and Zabilo, they can carry out the death penalty. And the, the, actually, uh, the church didn't kill, but the, the, the people of Ferdinand and Zabilo did. Very often, if they didn't have the person, they were denounced, they would burn an effigy of the person in absentee of. There's something called the auto-defe. One of the ways you were reconciled was the auto-defe. That was when you were reconciled, they had a whole ceremony for the reconciliation of individuals. There was two types. There was a private or a public um, one. Okay? Um, The auto de was a huge spectacle, it was a broke spectacle, with tremendous staging in the large plaza of Toledo or Seville or Barcelona or later in the New World. There are some very famous paintings of the auto de fe. One of them is by Francisco Riza, is in the Prado Museum in Madrid. You can see the burnings on the side and people standing up there. It's a very, very famous of the auto de fe. Actually, no one was actually tortured at the, at the Art of the Fay. That was not part of it. it that's a romanticized version that they were tortured and burned, but not the Art of the Fay. The Art of the Fay were people who were reconciled. What was that involved in the Art of the Fay? It was a Catholic Mass, a prayer, a public procession of those found guilty, and a reading of their sentences. They took place in public squares, um, and that was how they were finally reconciled. You had hundreds of people coming at once had this public uh, um, spectacle. By the 19th century, um, the Inquisition became largely unpopular in Spain as more liberal uh, Renaissance ideas became prevalent. Napoleon Bonaparte, when he conquered Spain in 1808, abolished the Inquisition, uh, but it was reconstituted in 1814 by Ferdinand VII, who, when he took back power after the fall of Napoleon, but ultimately, Napoleon, uh, Ferdinand's widow, upon his death in 1834, had a royal decree which finally ended the Inquisition in 1834. Uh, about 70 years later, some Jews trickled into Spain. Now, where did the Jews go? The first, one of the first places they went was Portugal. And at first, the Jews were accepted to Portugal, but God declared it differently. Because in 1496, 150,000 plus Jews were in Portugal. In December 1496, another shidduch was made. This time, between King Manuel of Portugal, one of the most powerful rulers, and Isabella, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. And part of the marriage agreement was that no Jews could remain in Portugal. So Manuel made a decree that all Jews had to be out in six months. That was not even kept, and within like three months, they forcibly converted the rest of the Jews that were in Spain without the, the option of exile. This created a conversal problem in Portugal. So in 1506, in Lisbon, um, there was a great plague. And you'll see, Jews can't have no way to win. They're forcibly converted. There's a great plague in Lisbon going on for months. No one knows why. Who are we going to blame? It must be the conversos. So lo and behold, one day they found some conversos with lambs and poultry around Passover time. 
Okay. They accuse them of keeping Passover. Their authorities let them go. This enraged the Christian Catholic deacons and friars, and they started preaching against the Jews. On the same day, <coughs> as one of the they preached, as they're in one of the churches, um, the Dominicans were displaying a crucifix in a reliquary, looking for answers, and supposedly the sun shined in a certain way, and the cross faced some of the new Christians in the room, and the deacons pointed at them. And when one of the new Christians says, it's, it's just a coincidence, they said no, and they killed him, and thus started the Lisbon or Easter massacre of 1506, killing thousands of new Christians, thousands of Jews who had been, uh, who had been forcibly converted. This went on from um, April 19th to 21st, called the Easter Massacre. King Emmanuel did punish not only the the people who who did the did it, but also the deacons. He executed all of them, and he actually confiscated the property of all these people and put uh, um, some kind of sanctions on Lisbon. But thousands of Jews were killed. The Portuguese, Portuguese would have their own Inquisition, separate from the Spanish Inquisition. One of the places where the Portuguese Inquisition went was in the New World, not only in Brazil, but it also ha- went all the way to India. And one of the most famous parts of the Inquisition was the Goa Indian Inquisition. Goa, not only did it, did it attack Hindus, it attacked many Jewish merchants who were in Goa, India, because uh, that, that was under the Portuguese as well. The Portuguese uh, Inquisition would end in 1821. Demographic consequences? Well, in 2008, a genetic study of the current population of the Iberian Peninsula showed that 10% of the Iberian Peninsula has Moorish or North African blood, and 20% has clearly defined Jewish blood. Um, They say that Franco, who was an ally of Hitler... now. By the time Franco came, Franco, of course, was a fascist who became empowered after, in 1936. By the time Franco, there was a few thousand Jews who had moved to Spain. Okay? The Inquisition was annulled. Hitler, of course, asked Franco for his Jews. Franco said no. Many historians attribute the following line. Franco said, if they apply the Nuremberg laws in Spain, they're coming for us all. I mean, which Spaniard could we say has no Jewish blood? If you're going to have genetics involved in this, Franco himself, they said, had, had some kind of Jewish blood in him. He, you know, so he never allowed the, 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 the Nazis to take any Jews from Spain, despite the fact that they took it from everywhere else they were connected to, including France. No Spanish Jews, even though they were a close ally of Hitler, were killed in the Holocaust. The Murano problem would be a major issue for years to come. But before that, as I mentioned, the, the, the Jewish world was destroyed. You know, just imagine if all of America was, God forbid, without an Israel being around, would have been forcibly converted, expelled. I mean, it, it created mass depression, mass social issues, and many Jews were becoming messianic in nature. Even whether, certainly, the conversos, many of them who still were practicing Judaism in Spain and Portugal, became extremely Hispanic. And there were other reasons besides the tragedy. One is that in 1453, <coughs> the great city of Constantinople fell to the Muslims, which will be, to this day, Istanbul. That was a huge loss. 
to the Christian world. That was one of the greatest Christian cities. And the Muslims, after hundreds of years of trying to destroy Constantinople, finally conquered it. And in fact, Suleiman the Magnificent would extend the Ottoman Empire all the way up to Austria by 1530. Suleiman the Magnificent was very pro-Jewish. He is the one who actually built, the, if you look at the old city wall today, he built the wall of the old city that we have today. He actually, as I mentioned in my class, he killed the architect because they missed, they, they did the wall incorrectly. That's why Silwan, Ir David's at outside the wall. He wanted the ancient walls and he built, they built it incorrectly. <coughs> the Muslims were, were conquering large parts of Europe. The Reformation had started uh, to some extent. So Catholicism was being shaken from within. <coughs> and lastly, um, <coughs> Lastly, the new world is now being, being explored. You have this new world being explored. All kinds of legends are going on about the ten tribes being spotted, about Messiah coming. In the year 1530, actually, in the year 1523, a weird, radical, unbelievable occurrence occurs. A gay, guy named David Ruveni shows up in, in Cairo. This Don Ruveni is dressed up as in a weird costume and he comes to Cairo and he says as follows that I am from the Lost Tribes. I'm from the tribe Ruvain. And my brother Joseph has, uh, uh, is the head of 300,000 Jewish soldiers um, who are over the Sambation. The Sambation is this mystical river which the Talmud talks about where the ten tribes are and we, we want to reconquer the Muslim world and bring the Jewish people back to the land of Israel. Guy, he's a very charismatic personality. And he goes around saying this. All of a sudden, he goes to travel to Venice, goes to Rome, and he's telling the story to everyone he sees. He's, he's charismatic, he's articulate, he's dressed in this weird, bizarre way that no one ever saw before. <coughs> and he goes and meets one of the most influential Jewish backers, bankers, <coughs> Daniel, Daniel Di Passi. Daniel Di Passi introduces him to a cardinal, Idigio Di Viterbio, who was a very prominent Christian Hebraist. And at the time of Ruchelin and a lot of the Renaissance in Italy, there were a lot of Christian Hebraists, who brings him to the Pope. And Pope Clement VII, this is so, it can only be in the storybooks, this is a true story. Pope Clement VII buys a story. He buys a story! He says, we will conquer, we will go with you, we will conquer the Turkish world. And he tells him, though, I want to get the king of Portugal involved. He needs an army. And he writes him a letter to, the, to Portugal. This king, Joao III. The new, this new king of the Jews comes to Portugal, and the king of Portugal actually takes it very seriously as well. Now this becomes a lightning rod in Portugal. Remember these conversos? Now you have this Jewish guy saying, just saying he's from the tribe of Reuben. I have, I have, thank you. From the tribe of, of thank you. From the tribe of, of, of Reuben, who is accepted by the Pope, has a, uh, the king of Portugal is taking him seriously. So wild did it become that one of the royal council, who was actually a conversal Jew, his name is Diogo Pires, converts back to Judaism, takes the name Shlomo Molchol, 
becomes a Kabbalist and starts having visions about him being Messiah and he be, actually people took this guy seriously he became a, such a great Kabbalist he wrote books on Kabbalah and he's falling around saying he's the Messiah this guy the other um, Messiah so people said there's two Messiahs there's Messiah ben Joseph Messiah ben David and the new Christians in, in Portugal start getting wild so much so that they went ahead and freed one of the people held by the Inquisition and killed people. This became unruly in Portugal, and David Ruvenu and Shlomo Mokhal have to leave Portugal. They all disappear, and by 1530 they're back in Italy and they're in the Italian states, states and they're going around and David Shlomo Mokhal is writing books. Ruvenu is going around and accepted. But in 1532, they decided we're finally going to the Habsburg, and the rock stars. They're, you know, they're taken very seriously by people. 1532, they go to uh, to the Holy Roman Empire, and they want to convince Charles V, who was who was one of the most powerful emperors of the time, to join them in their battle against the Turks. The Turks, you know, the Turks were the dominant kingdom who was threatening all Christianity, and Charles V says, you're a heretic. Because Shlomo Mokhal was originally a Catholic. says, you're a heretic. Before they went, Yosel Rosenheim, who was this court Jew, a very powerful court Jew, told him, don't go. Shlomo Mokhal was burnt at the stake. At, at the stake. You know, some, uh, I actually once saw some, some of the rabbis held, he's actually a Gilgal of some great people. This is, this is an unbelievable story. And somehow, no one knows what happened to Dov Ruvain. He disappears. Some historian says he was in prison, died in prison, but no one knows what actually happened with him. Well, there's double Ruvani sites, you know, sightings, like Elvis sightings for generations, for years to come. But the bottom line is that this messianic fervor and the failure of it further discouraged the conversos of Portugal and Spain. And many of them collapsed into Catholicism. For the next hundred years, many of them would escape and establish and leave Portugal and Spain. But many, many of those remained and became totally, thoroughly Catholic in the descendants from the people like Franco um, and, the, and those type. Where did the Jews go? They went around the entire world. They went to Milan, they went to Bologna, Pisa, uh, Naples, uh, where they freely exercised the Jewish religion again. They were so numerous in, in, in Italy that Fernando de Goas Lorario, an, uh, an abbot from Oporto, he had an entire book of Jews who had left Portugal as conversos and openly avowed Judaism in Italy. In Piedmont, the Duke of Piedmont of Savoy welcomed the Jews. In Anacona, Italy, by, by the year 1553, there were 3,000 Portuguese conversos who re, re, reclaimed their Judaism. Um, the Ottoman Empire, as mentioned, Jews went throughout the Ottoman Empire. Um, and not only did they go in the, in the, after the Inquisition, <coughs> expulsion, but in 1601 um, Philip the third of Spain and the head of Portugal let out any conversal wanted to get out. So Amsterdam would, be, would, would, be, would have a large saying as in Salonica, Thessalonica um, Thessalonica, Greece became a Jewish city the, the, the ports were closed on Shabbos it became so, so Jewish today Thessalonica is the second largest city in Greece after Athens while at the time the Thessalonica was majority Jewish till the 19th century actually the ports were closed on Shabbos sailors had to know not to come to Thessalonica on Shabbos because they couldn't get the port the port was not open the com- coming back of many of these conversos 
rubbed many of the other Turkish Jews in the wrong way. And they started writing on their names Samech Tes Svardi Tahor. Even today, if you speak to Svardin, they'll say Svardi Tahor. Svardi Tahor is to say they never had any converso blood. Okay, this, there was, and there will be tensions for a couple hundred years to come. I remember, I even read a double racket once says to me, I'm Svardi Tahor. That's how Jews from North Africa and how Jews from Turkey and Iraq spoke. They were Sephardi Tahor. They never had any conversal blood. Having to be, they also had never any Ani Ashkenaz blood either. But that was the language of Sephardi Tahor. Um, as far as crypto Judaism or secret Judaism, there were packages. Halakhically speaking, today they were they have they have no Masora. So you know, even though they were Anusim originally. Within 200 years, the post can held they were not halakhically Jewish. There was mass intermarriages. Even those who you would have found under, you know, lighting candles married Mexicans. There were, Jew- there were communities in Mexico. There were communities in Southwest America. There were communities in Spain and Portugal. But the intermarriages, there were conversions. They were practicing Catholics. And the, halakhically speaking, all posts can hold that as a general rule, they're not halakhically Jewish. Okay? There were a couple of exceptions. One of them was in Belmonte, Portugal. Belmonte, the conversos only married conversos up to our century. So there, even though, again, they would need halakha conversion, many of them actually came back. Another interesting place was, was on, on Majorca, Mallorca, the Balearic Islands. There was a people called the Quetes. They also, the, the, Christian, the new Christians were not married to the old Christians and not vice versa. So, halakhically speaking, there are those who are leading with, with that group. The Nazis actually requested these people. They were not given them um, in, in the future. Suffice it to say, and actually, the, the, the Inquisition would go throughout the New World. We'll discuss in the New World. The New World became infested with conversos. The Inquisition would eventually follow them to the New World. Um, but many of the people, as discussed with Columbus, on the boat were Jews or conversos. Santa Cruz, Bolivia, not Santa Cruz, California, was majority Jewish in the 16th century. There were conversos who went back to the faith. Eventually, the Inquisition caught up with them as well. In sum, though, after 1492, the Jewish world would never ever be the same. Spain, which was the most powerful, prominent, rich Jewish community, was now technically Yudenine, free of Jews. Svaric Jewry became vastly reduced in numbers. Remember I said the Svaric Jewry at one point in the last century was 97% of Jewry. They became vastly reduced in numbers and disorganized in spirits and plans. They had many heresies even amongst the Jews. It's no surprise that people like Baruch Spinoza, De La Casta, and many other of the heretics of the 17th century were Sephardic Jews who came from these mixed backgrounds who went around very, very confused. Um, there would be many communities that would be rebuilt by Sephardim and re-empowered and of course there would be many contributions for the years to come. But the Sephardic world would never have the same vibrancy that it once did. At one point, when you talked about a Jew, most of the time we were talking about a Sephardi. By, as I mentioned, by 100 years ago, 90 something percent of world Jewry is Ashkenazic. 
Most of the halachic works are Ashkenazic. Most of the people you hear about, the Einsteins to the Freud, secular or religious, will become Ashkenazic. A lot of that was because the Sephardic world became so discouraged, so traumatized, so thrown out of whack due to this Spanish Inquisition expulsion. Therefore, and things will change as the future goes on, the focus of Jewry, to a large extent, not totally, moves to Eastern Europe. The next lecture in two weeks will be the place where that will start. That will be on the Jews of Poland and now we in two weeks. Thank you.